fun. I'm used to saying good evening for Dharma Talks. This is a, a little bit of a shake-up of our very well-entrenched routine. Entrenched so long that uh, I feel disoriented. No, just kidding. <laughs> it's really fine. Um, I'm really happy to be able to share to me what is the good news of the practice in spite of how it may have felt to you today. So was it, uh, well, was it good news or bad news? Good news. So it's sometimes said that the first insights of a retreat are bad news. Mm -hmm. We feel how tight, how restless, how agitated we we see as... um, Bhante Gunaratna, wonderful teacher, says, he says somewhere in the process of meditation, it usually doesn't take long, you will come to the realization that you're completely crazy. <laughs> Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. But he says, don't worry about this. It's no worse than it was yesterday. <laughs> you just didn't notice before. <laughs> but in a more beautiful way, what this reminds us of is that we are shining a light on our experience in a much more intimate way than than we're used to. Our minds are usually so scattered going here and there and we're simply gathering the power in a sense, the power of attention, which is really hard to explain. Just the miracle, the, the, the weirdness, but the miracle is that we are conscious and and we are aware, and that that awareness doesn't just have a kind of vague knowing quality. It has a potential for being laser-like, intimate, um, literally deconstructing uh, reality. And so that process of even one day of coming, uh, bringing this scattered attention into the into the simple reality of our experience brightens that light. It's like rubbing sticks. It starts to, it starts to ignite the, what we sometimes call the, the light of attention. But here's what Francois Fenelon from the 17th century said, as light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We're amazed by our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a, swar- a whole swarm of shameful thoughts and feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter. And initially, we are filled with horror. But bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So this whole process is about a cure, about a healing, about an awakening. The Buddha was sometimes described as the great physician. And he used, in very much in his language, he used the language of of diagnosis, prescription, and then the, the expected or hoped for result. 
So I'll frame it, the talk a little bit tonight in that form, or I'll weave that a little bit in. But it's, a, it's all a reminder that, well, as Mark said last night, he quoted that wonderful poem from Hafez where he says, you carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into a nightmare. Don't mix them. But the, he ends that poem by saying, you carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. And the Buddha had another very beautiful, simple line that reminds us of the potential to come out of the tangle of our, of our chronic neurosis, our chronic misery, our chronic reactivity, our contentiousness with reality, to come out of that to a, a, a place of real joy. He says, I know of no other single thing co- so conducive to misery than an uncultivated, untrained heart and mind. And then he goes on to say, I know of no other single thing as conducive to well-being than a cultivated and well-trained mind. So even though the essential teachings of the, of the Buddha, that, out of which c- comes the practice that we're doing here, of course mixed with with beginningless causes and influences that came from many, many other streams of, of since the beginning of time. In general, it's been coalesced in this teaching um, from the Buddha, which he, sh- what he shared was the result of the expression of what he realized directly through his own experience. It was not a teaching that was uh, just adopted through reflection. It was something that came from a, a direct confrontation with reality, being struck by the truth of things. Uh, so struck that intuitive wisdom just emerged, that, that clear perception of reality, where that understanding that came could no longer be, it, it was no longer debatable. It was what he described as um, he was left with a sense of verified faith, a confidence that came out of direct experience, which is very different than the faith that comes to us through belief or through adopting views. We mostly fight about those and go to war about those. We, they don't leave us with that sense of an unshakable peace, a sense of relief. So you may hear from this that the, that the Buddha experienced something, a kind of profound sense of relief. He was sometimes called uh, Sukhiya. Sukhiya means the happy one. So even though the teachings point a lot to the need for us to turn our attention toward the things that are difficult in our lives, because it turns out that the endless running from them actually keeps us on an endless wheel of searching, of dissatisfaction, even though there is this emphasis on turning toward what is difficult, uh, the Buddha was not called the great sufferer. He was called the happy one. But by turning toward what is challenging and difficult for us, he discovered not the happiness or the joy of just a good mood that's usually dependent on getting what we want 
or getting rid of what we don't want or some fantasy of what may come at some point. Instead, the, the happiness of a Buddha is actually called Lokutra Sukha. It's called unconditional happiness, a well-being that doesn't depend on what's happening, a well-being that is unassailable, unshakable, regardless of the situation one is in, one, regardless of one's life situation. That the capacity to be well can pervade even difficult circumstances. And if it can't, it's not really worth it. He contrasted this kind of unconditional well-being, this capacity to be well, to be balanced, to be at peace, to have a sense of ease and open-heartedness, even in difficult circumstances. He contrasted this with what he called lokiya sukha, otherwise known as worldly happiness, the happiness of, that depends on satisfying some kind of hunger of getting what you want or getting rid of what you don't want. And that kind of happiness, he also said, is a, a beautiful thing. This, it's beautiful that we can experience a whole array of pleasures in our lives. It's, in fact, if, we, if we're not able to experience a, an array of pleasures, the pleasures of our senses, we tend to get really grumpy. We tend to get really dry. We tend to get really hard and really irritated. So our senses need to be gladdened. They need to be happy. But at the same time, if one makes, their, makes the kinds of pleasures that come in the world our sole devotion, make that the source of this peace and relief. The Buddha described that tendency. Uh, he said, you, you, are putting, you, have, you are applying misplaced faith. You're putting your faith in something that will... Uh, will not be reliable. Why is it not reliable? Because every single, what we call ordinary sense pleasure, all the pleasure of the senses, even the more refined pleasures of the senses, all experiences have the nature to arise, we experience them, feel that kind of joy, gladness, and then they fade away. Every experience fades away. And in that fading, unless we are in harmony with that fact, unless we really look carefully and see that that's just the way it is, and we understand it. In other words, like the William Blake poem, we kiss the joy as it flies. If we really understand it with with wisdom, we say, okay, I don't need to bind myself, as William Blake would say, he or she who binds to herself a joy does the winged life destroy. But she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. But if we don't look at it with wisdom, we tend to miss the, the unreliability of that experience to give us a, a lasting sense of happiness. And in its wake, in the wake of the loss of pleasurable experiences, we, there is a feeling of, ugh, oh, that one went. 
And rather than actually feel that feeling of, of loss, feeling of, of impermanence, of unreliability, what our mind does is it quickly looks for something else. And in fact, the very act, remember, whatever, whatever, however you train your mind, whatever you practice becomes your, your life. Each time you aim for that pleasure as your source of well-being, you're actually training your mind to keep going in search. Training your mind to say, my happiness, my well-being depends on satisfying some hunger. In other words, I won't be happy until I get what I want. What does that do to our experience of the present moment? Any of you look forward to the end of the sittings today? Any of you look forward to the meals, to the Dharma talks, to the, to the rest period? We usually look forward to things because we associate them with a pleasure that will give us a feeling of relief. We love ourselves, so we want relief. But we don't realize that that state that we place our mind in, unless we just notice, oh, I'm waiting for the bell to ring. That's, that's a very interesting state. I highly recommend that you make it, make it part of your practice is to notice those moments before the bell rings because it, it's so, such a little microcosm of this chronic state that we put ourselves in fairly constantly in our life. I call it a state of suspended happiness a state of waiting, a state of postponing. It means I can't be happy until the bell rings. We literally walk around in our lives you know, waiting. I know many people wait for the weekend. Or some of you are already waiting for the end of the retreat. <laughs> or waiting for the talk to end. Or waiting to see if I can get some kind of result. We're not used to just taking our life as it presents itself and recognize that the, the fruit of our practice, the path of our practice, the beginning, the end of our practice is always arrived at in the present moment. As Alan Watts put it, puts it, he, he pops into my mind a lot. He says, when you make music, you don't do it in order to reach the end of the composition. He says, if that were the purpose of music, the fastest <laughs> musicians would be the best. And, we don't, and when we're dancing, we don't do it in order to arrive at a particular place on the floor, as in taking a journey. When you dance, the dance itself is the point. When you go on a journey, the journey itself is the point. The same is true in meditation, that the point of our practice is always arrived at in the present moment. So his, his beat view, with his beat language is, you le- need to learn to dig the present, to groove with the eternal now, and to see that the place where it's at is, is here and now. So this is very contrary to the, the, um, the way that m- most of us frame our reality, and even frame our meditation practice. And those who are seeking 
just more pleasure, will be disappointed at Spirit Rock. On the other hand, those who, are, who want to discover that well-being that is unconditional, that doesn't depend on circumstances, that can, can be, be balanced and open-hearted even when it's painful. Uh, that, I think, you can uh, rely on in your practice. Everything that we do here leads in that direction, the direction of freedom, a direction, the direction of lokutra sukha, The Buddha, as I said, taught the the things he later taught, he discovered through his direct experience. And some of that experience was his his kind of general experience of life that, that helped to turn his attention toward and turn his longing toward that which can't be taken away from you. Because, and why would that be important to turn one's attention toward that which can't be taken away from you? Because he saw that the most obvious fact of our existence, as the Wiley's Dictionary puts it, the definition of birth is the leading cause of death. Death was the Buddha's guru. And this may... This may seem so obvious to us, but we have this amazing capacity to somehow, miraculously, and people have been having this same experience for thousands of years, somehow, miraculously, this is not going to happen to us. In the Bhagavad Gita, you know, it's all, what's the most wondrous thing in this world that billions are dying around us every day, but somehow it won't happen to us. Uh, So this goes back thousands of years. So even to share this teaching, it's so universal, it's so, so human. But sometimes our eyes open, and in his case, he was, you know, restless mind, agitated, dissatisfied, felt that kind of existential angst and said, you know, I, you know I, I'm not happy here. Any of you ever have that feeling? Well, in his case, he, was, he had everything, just like relative to most people in the Western world, um, or more people in the Western world, I amend that. There's so many people who have, who have an experience of a lot of lack. But relative to other times and many places in the world, there's enormous capacity to feel satiated, satisfied, you know, relatively satisfied, well-fed, opportunities. Yet, uh, we often walk around with a certain kind of, as Alexis de Tocqueville, he said, in America, I've seen the freest and best educated of beings in the circumstances the happiest to be found in the world. Yet, it seemed to me that a cloud habitually hung on their brow and they seemed almost sad in their pleasure because they never stopped thinking of the good things they have not yet got. So this is no different than it was at the time of the Buddha for the Buddha because relative to 
to the beings of his day, he had so much, uh, he was offered so much, had a princely-like life and, and lots of comfort, but he was very dissatisfied. And there was really a strong expectation that he would just go into his family's business, you know, being the kind of monarch-type person. And he said, for me, doing, doing that would be like sitting on a bed of coals if my heart's not at rest. He found that feeling of dissatisfaction intolerable. And so if you came with a little bit of that feeling, it, it doesn't suggest something's wrong with you. It means that you're starting to feel that pull to something more reliable than what we usually associate happiness with. But one of the things that turned him inward was the was the confrontation with a, a corpse and a really old person and a, and a person similar in age to him. He was 29 at the time that he really kind of started to wake up. And he saw that person was quite ill. And it, and it reminded him that this is, a, this is a reality. It could happen to me. And that, that somehow in that moment it said that his um, pride, his enchantment with being young just kind of melted away. We tend to think it'll last forever. And then we just devote enormous amounts of money to try to perpetuate it. Here's what the Dalai Lama said. He put it a little bit differently. When asked what surprised him most about humanity, he answered, man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. He sacrifices money to recuperate his health. Then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. But part of this is this sense of I'll go on and on and just keep, keep desiring for for youth. So at that moment, the, that enchantment, or as he called it, the pride in youth just melted. And then he saw by seeing somebody his own age so ill, he, the enchantment with health, the assumption of perpetual good health, that also melted away. And then when he saw that corpse, he said, wow, this is going to happen to me. His, his pride in life or his enchantment with life doesn't mean that we shouldn't love life, love every minute. In fact, if anything, the reality of impermanence should m- make us just weep with the preciousness of the moments that we, that we have. Because it, we haven't lost it yet. And so this is just to, to be in this living moment is... I, I don't want to, well, I'll, I'll let Mark share his teaching. But uh, Mark shared a beautiful teaching with us about uh, the reality of, of how every day is um, our lifespan shortens. <laughs> we'll put it that way and I'll let him give the full, the full throttle. Fortunately, it wasn't just the, the news that, that uh, 
we get old, sick, and die. He also saw in his, with his eyes wide open, he saw examples of, an example of a renunciate, of somebody who was living with quite simplicity, who had a kind of serenity that really didn't have all the bells and whistles in their life, but were somehow seemed happier. And that really turned him toward the capacity of uh, the possibility of finding this uh, sense of freedom in the on the inside or that it's not a it's an inside job so to speak how many of you not have not heard the story of what happened to the buddha i'm just curious most of you know okay so i'm not telling you anything that you don't know already it's interesting to reflect whether that we live our lives with that kind of clarity. Whether or we walk around with the, with the pride in youth, the pride in health, and the pride in life. So our practice invites us to be honest with ourselves about where our mind is going. Is our mind going toward this this obsession with keeping things going, obsession with what's next. So when the Buddha realized the the reality of sickness, old age, and death, he looked a little more carefully. And he saw that that beings, not only were they they subject to these, these three realities, but beings were we're in a constant state of dissatisfaction, generally wanting what they didn't have and not wanting what they did have. And that this recipe for life wasn't making anybody happy. This is basically the methodology of our world. You know, as one quote that I think Mark actually shared this with me many years ago, it was a cartoon of a guy with a lot of stuff and he and the caption was to be one with everything you need one of everything (laughs) this was the yeah it was the advertisement for some pickup truck but it's interesting how the the consumer world has it plays plays us on that that holy longing that we have for relief and promises promises Happiness. As one Tibetan teacher put it, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of this samsara, which means endless wandering, this endless search. Samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me to be a celebration of all the things that lead away from truth, make truth hard to live for and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated, assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction in and around us. 
The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. Obsessed then with false hopes and dreams and ambitions which promise happiness but lead to more dissatisfaction and misery, we're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst, and all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us thirstier. So are you happy yet? <laughs> so you, when you hear this, you could think, oh, this teaching, it's so pessimistic. But it's really realistic. The teaching of the Buddha was said that, he said that the, the uh, condition that we're in is that we have this kind of stress in our lives. The stress of, of wanting what we don't have, not wanting what we do have. The stress of loss, of separation. The stress of, of being born. And the stress of, of um, yeah, just so much grief and lamentation if you're human. Definition of birth, leading cause of all these things. But the method for trying to make this life work in the face of these inevitable kinds of stresses, the methodology of pushing things away, resisting our life, or staying in that state of perpetual desire and distraction, obsession with what's next, that method just compounds the stress that we experience. So the Buddha's first prescription for dealing with the inevitable stress, even the stress of this first day of the retreat, is to the extent that's possible, little bits at a time, to turn toward what you're experiencing. To say, can I? Can I make space? Can I bring kind attention to this moment's experience? So how many of you are feeling a little uncomfortable right now after a long day of sitting? Okay. Can you just for a moment, thank you for admitting it. <laughs> First day is, is brutal. <laughs> it's really the hard part. I so appreciate you staying with the day and, and uh, being willing to do it. It's so rare in this world, in spite of this explosion of mindfulness, to actually sustain practice uh, even for an hour, even for a half day, but for a full day, and then to commit yourself to many days, that's, it's heroic and takes a lot of courage. But just for this moment, besides patting yourself on the back a little bit, gladdening your heart a little bit with the, with your sincer- with the sincerity of your effort, see if you can just make space to feel uncomfortable. For one moment, don't try to do anything about it or undo it. Be able to say inwardly, oh, this is what feeling uncomfortable is like. And just notice in that moment of just a little space in your mind with the quality of comprehension. You know what's happening. You're not resisting it, nor are you trying to make anything happen. What happens to the mental suffering about your experience? 
at that moment of mindful attention, there is a, there is a, what we sometimes use the word, there is a cessation. There's a falling away of the tendency to compound that with more mental suffering. Sometimes called shooting the, the extra arrow. The second arrow, you know, the, the discomfort is the first arrow and then the, the second arrow is either beating ourselves up about it, resisting it, or being caught in, in trying to get away from it, wanting something else to happen. So everything moves in the direction of turning toward what our experience is. And, you, and the third part of that prescription or that, that diagnosis prescription was the result. The result is you know, oh, I've turned toward this experience. No longer resisting it. So even implicit in that method of turning toward is the second, that was the first truth that the Buddha said, the first, called the first noble truth. There is stress in our life. There's suffering. There are things that are hard to bear. There's unsatisfactoriness. It's not easy if you're born. There, is, there are three kinds of not easy. There's what he called dukkha dukkha, garden variety, pain, um, things like talked about, sickness, old age, death, not, in, not getting what you want. Then there is the, the kind of stress that comes with the, with the fact that things change. It's called anicca dukkha. The, the stress of, of having things in a constant state of flux. And the last is called sankara dukkha. It's, the, it's a little more subtle, but it's just the... the in some ways, the relentlessness of the way things just keep impinging on our consciousness. Life is just sometimes just so intense and so hard to bear. And that it's not, it's not as, as easy and, and pleasure, constant pleasure-filled as we imagine it would be. So this must be open to, because otherwise we end up in the second truth, which is what turns our basic stress, dissatisfaction, etc., into mental suffering is this chronic, repeated tendency to want things to be other than the way they are. And we can see it just in so many ways on the retreat. Know, wanting a different experience, wanting the, 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 as I said before, the bell to ring. But what happens is the, the tendency to like and dislike, to push away and grasp. Well, liking and disliking aren't pushing away, they're just liking and disliking. But what often follows, if we don't notice how much we're liking and not liking something, is through our conditioning we tend to get into this either a, a grasping relationship with, with what's next or a contentious relationship with what is, a kind of pushing away or resistance. Or we just space out. And so it's this ground of not being able to open to our experience and reacting to our experience that we end up 
our minds end up getting filled with what the Buddha called the three poisons, grasping, aversion, and delusion. Greed, hatred, and delusion, as you probably heard it. And this expresses itself often in a, in a, because it builds up a certain kind of pressure when we're, we're in a state of reactivity. It just generates a, an internal narrative of, I'm not happy, and unless something changes, I, w- I won't be happy. And so into that world becomes this kind of uh, innocent, very innocent fantasy life of how I'm going to figure out how to make myself happier how to get over what I'm experiencing. But if we get carried along by the usual uh, tendency to try to figure that out, to think about it, to think about how I can make myself happy, and then live in a kind of virtual world of our thinking with ourselves as the central character in that thought, if we get caught in that method of thinking about how to be happy, It never leads to more wisdom. It leads to more doubt, more confusion, more more tension. And it leads to, to, uh, one of the ways of talking about it, it leads to incarnating in an imaginary world. We just start thinking we're the, the person that we're imagining ourselves. We're the person that's come from where we were before. We're passing through here on our way to something better. So we literally enter a dreamscape of time. I don't know if that makes sense. When we're always here, but our mind just starts creating a version of us that's going somewhere. And the Buddha called this tendency to to, um, become, to keep going to the next, this desire for becoming, called that bhava. So it's either desire for pleasure, desire for becoming, or the very strong desire way that craving expresses itself, this wanting things to be different, is uh, wanting everything to stop, just resisting, shutting down. Um, And the extreme version of that is we start feeling uh, we can at times with such an intense state of aversion to our reality, another one of those innocent reactions but chronic is we can, it, it can become so extreme that the extreme of craving can come in the form of the desire for suicide. That's intense aversion. So, and it's really just a movement of mind. On one hand, it's, it's a moment experience, and that's what we can discover in our practice is, oh, this is just the desire to, for what's next, or this is just aversion, or this is just this. But when, it, when the mind is untrained, we literally incarnate in some of those views about ourselves and about what it is I need to be happy. And it can manifest in such extremes. So instead of, of living inside of these, this quality of craving, of wanting things to be different, we learn in our practice to, uh, to notice that. And in the noticing of that, in noticing that our mind is leaping ahead, 
we feel the tension of that. We feel the attachment to what's next. And we naturally, when intuitive, intuitive wisdom, intuitive awareness shines on what we're experiencing, when you notice that you're holding on tightly, you don't keep holding on. This is where letting go happens. We let go. It's just like realizing that you're holding your breath. Any of you realize you're holding your breath today? It happens. What do you do when you realize you're holding your breath? You keep holding your breath? No. Just wisdom of seeing that with clear perception, nobody has to tell you what that's the right thing to do. It's what happens. Letting go happens when you see the strain and stress of holding on, of being caught. So the prescription, though, for, for this habit of compounding our stress with this chronic desire for things to be different is to, is to let go. One of our lineage teachers, Ajahn Chah, put it very simply, just something more accessible, something you can carry with you throughout this retreat. He says, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will come to an end. And so that your struggles with the world will come to an end points to the the third truth. First truth, stress, open to it. Second truth, cause of it, what compounds it, let go. The third, there is an end. There is a, that experience that one can have in this very life. Fulfilled moment to moment when we're with things and not reacting so much. But more profoundly, if we develop and cultivate that habit of being present, more continuous in our attention, we can experience a profound sense of relief, an increasing sense of relief. Said so there is a, an end to suffering, this extra stress. And his prescription for that, it's, this must be realized. You need to realize it. I find this very inspiring, uh, a reminder that we, that we are so trainable, that we can, that our freedom, a sense of well-being um, is accessible. Really depends not so much on what's presenting itself, it's, it's how you're relating to it. Are you relating to it with this sense of, of wanting it to be otherwise, or are you Kissing the joys as they fly and the, and the miseries. And this is our capacity is to, is to be free. It's to learn how to let go. As Ajahn Sumedho and part of that lineage of Ajahn Chah said, he, he says, I did nothing but this for two years. He says, 
I've simplified my practice down to two words, letting go. Rather than develop this practice and develop that and go into this and read the Abhidharma, Buddha psychology, learn Majamaka, the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of being a world authority on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, he says, just let go. He says, I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to figure things out, I'd say, let go. Until the desire would fade out. Just a little extra. He says, I want to save you from getting getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. He says, there's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) (laughs) But this this letting go, which really in some ways means, means letting be. It's those simple moments of letting this experience be what it is. And trying to bring a kindness and an interest to just what's happening. A capacity to make a little space. And some would say that one teacher said that the art of meditation is the art of making space. So even at this point in the talk, notice the state of your body. Notice the state of your mind. Just notice what's happening. And see if you can just experience that. Make a little room for it. Remember, in this, in this moment of mindful attention and clear comprehension of what's happening, there's nothing to do about your experience. And there's nothing to undo. Notice what happens to your suffering in that moment. Now, of course, this kind of freedom, this cessation of grasping as you may have sensed is a split second it's a half breath away it's just it's any moment that we in a sense are awake to our experience and not resisting it or trying to make it different however and so this the capacity to experience this sense of okayness is very accessible, so near. And it's important that we, that we have little tastes of that. That we can taste our mind being in moments, just as the Buddha did. Moments when our mind is not in a state of contentiousness. We're not f- fighting with reality. And as, he, as it happened to him, it came in his practice and his mind became very quiet. As maybe yours did when you just for a moment stopped. Stopped looking ahead and stopped looking back. Trying to stop trying to make something happen. 
when his mind, when he felt that certain quiet, and he, because of his practice, he really stayed in it. And he experienced, as any of us will, if, we're, if we keep the, the continuity of just meeting our experience. And that's what happens. There's a buildup over the course of the retreat. So at some point in the span of your practice or in, in, the, in the Buddhist practice, I, I think this is an important thing to talk about, is his mind became really so continuous in its attention that um, he fell into states of great quietude. And his mind and body became suffused with a happiness. He, he sensed that he had moved beyond the, just the, the ordinary kinds of pleasures of the senses. And he tasted something that was so exceedingly pleasant that it was, it was a, a, a kind of taste of a freedom that was a temporary um, kind of like a temporary nirvana, just so happy, so quiet. He described it as beyond the mundane, described it as an unmixed happiness. But then he realized something about that experience, that eventually that experience would pass away too. Darn. And he saw that that wasn't really a, that really wasn't, um, it was certainly inspiring. It's very inspiring to have those experiences. He called those kinds of experiences the springboard to awakening. But he also said that these, that same experience, if you put misplaced faith in that, that you will, um, that it will corrupt your practice. You'll end up spending your time looking for that special experience. So he went from just immersed in pleasure but dissatisfied to immersed in a kind of meditative bliss but dissatisfied. And finally, he decided that um, he wasn't really free. And as the story goes, he, you know, at first he, he tried to uh, transcend his experience, become free through self-mortification, through starving himself, through, through, renunci- through extreme renunciation, and he, he just became quite sick and tired unable to practice, mental weakness, couldn't really, couldn't really practice. So he saw that, that extreme doesn't work. And then he saw the extreme of being just driven by or ordinary sense pleasures. That doesn't work either. So then he realized that there's, there's a middle place that both acknowledges the need for being well-fed, comfortable, senses gladdened, he remembered a time when he was young and really comfortable in a beautiful environment. Said, there's, 
a person has to have a measure of some comfort in their life. So he took food and he started to practice again. And he used the, that continuity of practice that we're doing here. But when he, when he started to experience the, the joy of having his mind and body in harmony, coalesced, that unmixed kind of happiness, as it said, he didn't let the pleasure of it overtake him. He didn't let it corrupt his practice. Instead, he applied the continuous light, that more bright light of attention on his experience because his mind was then much more continuously clear. Perception was really clear. Another reminder that you will see over the course of these days, well, we get to see you. Your lights brighten enormously. Already, even after a day of practice, I'm, you look beautiful. But, and you look different than you did when you came last night. But it, it become, the two things happen that are so beautiful for us and inspiring is that you become you know, so light. And your, the light of your attention gets brighter. But also you, with that, with a more opening, more space in your, in your mind comes this amazing tenderness, responsiveness of heart. So the, the sweetness that we get to, to share with you is um, it's worth the price of admission. It's great. Anyway, that light of attention, he, he decided, I'm, I'm not going to get up until, I, until I've um, tasted something more reliable. And he practiced just like we are, moment to moment to moment. And in that process, not only did he begin to see just how things, how things move through these bodies and minds, just constant change, moods, sensations, thoughts, images. He saw that, the, that this is the whole range of experience, that we have lots of thoughts. Some would say we have 65,000 thoughts a day and 90% repeats from the day before. I wonder. But he saw the thoughts and images, he saw the moods, he saw it all. But there was a, a coolness, though. There was a, a non-reactiveness that came. The brighter, the more he saw, the less, the less his mind grabbed. This was always changing. The less he pushed away, the more he began to sense, oh, there's a a sense of freedom that I have. I'm, I feel well. It doesn't matter what seems to be going through my mind. It might sound kind of cool, but the actual experience is everything you see, you love. Everything is interesting. So it's not a distancing, it's a wow. And in that wow, there was a taste of, of freedom, of uh, a well-being that didn't seem to depend on what was happening. So notice as you go through the day, this may sound kind of distant or, or rarefied in some way, but notice whatever it is you're noticing. I did this with my daughter. It was amazing. We sat at the, 
we sat at the breakfast table one morning. I'm still amazed that she listened to me. <laughs> it's almost 14. And I, know, I said, notice the, the taste of the food, notice the sight. No, you know, I was using everything that was right in the immediate environment. I no, notice, notice what's noticing. And in a moment, I saw her, her realize that the, what was noticing wasn't, was the same, wasn't affected by whatever was being noticed. And I, I kind of saw the lights go on. And I, I, one, I'm amazed that she even listened to me. But this is something we can taste as you go through the day. Notice how what you're noticing, it's all important, but it's less important than the, the noticing itself. I just did a retreat where I entitled it, Awareness is Your Best Friend. And it was inspired by this, this um, teacher I used to go see in India named H.W.L. Uh, Punja, where he, he would, tongue-in-cheek, he would say, marry the one who won't divorce you. He was pointing to something in us that, that we, can, we can learn to rely on, to trust. So as the Buddha paid attention to the flow of experience, he had that taste of freedom in a flash of insight. It, his mind just opened and he realized the freedom that I've been searching for that reliable refuge we talked about last night is none other than the nature of my own mind. The highest happiness. And there was a, there was a deep sense of the search falling away. Relief. Then he, at first he didn't think anybody would get what he understood. But then he saw uh, that there were those, and this is the way it's written about in the teachings, there were those with a little dust on their eyes and if pointed toward back to their own nature could realize the same kind of awakening. So he went and found some of his more serious ascetic friends who he thought were, would be open to what he said. And he basically said, you know, there's stress. And there is, and this must be welcomed, opened. And there's the cause of stress, of compounding stress. This must be abandoned, let go. There's an end to it. And then there's a path. The end of it, the cessation is the third noble truth, the fourth. There's the, there the noble eightfold path. The center of that noble eightfold path that includes the what he described as the purification of our actions, when if made strong, if we really practice non-harming over and over again, bring our mindful attention to that, then we increasingly experience the, the, what he called the bliss of blamelessness, a happiness uh, that comes from what he called purity of action. And if you make that very strong, bring your attention to that, 
it will make it possible then when you sit to not be so inundated with the effects of your past actions. You can actually brighten that light of attention. And if that attention becomes brighter, shines in its clarity, you can, you can, um, this makes possible the, the awakening of wisdom. The center of that path, that eightfold path of, of conduct and mind training and wisdom is mindful attention, kindfulness. And, and with mindfulness, we, we purify, you could say, purify our actions, purify our mind, purify our view and our understanding. Those moments of mindful attention, they may seem like, oh, another moment of mindful attention in my breath. Every one of those moments enhances the things, the experiences that are helpful and wholesome for well-being. Each one of those moments of mindfulness diminishes the moments that are, that are reactive and contentious. So you're on to something, I hope you sense even though it's a tough day that you're on to something uh, that can bring a, a real heart's release. Uh, and just remember not to, not to um, forget that it's fulfilled by each of those little moments of making space for what you're experiencing. That what you're experiencing now is the right experience. Why? Because it's happening. The Buddha knowing the Dharma with the Sangha. Keep it simple. So I think I'll, I'll end with a little poem, even though I've gone over an hour, haven't I? Well, since I ended with mindfulness, I'll share this very hard-hitting little passage from a Tibetan teacher called The Mirror of Mindfulness. Homage to the, the sovereign within, self-arising mindfulness. I am the sword of mindfulness. Look, friends, when you see me, be mindful. I'm the mirror of mindfulness. I mirror your careful attention. Look clearly and see into the essence of mind. Mindfulness is the root of the Dharma. Mindfulness is the body of practice. Mindfulness is the fortress of the mind. It's the friend of aware wisdom. It's the support of all the teachings and practices. Lack of mindfulness will allow negative forces to overcome you. Without mindfulness, you will be swept away by laziness. Lack of mindfulness is the creator of evil deeds. Lack of mindfulness can accomplish nothing. Lack of mindfulness is a pile of dung. Without mindfulness, you sleep in an ocean of pee. Without mindfulness, you are a heartless corpse. Friends, please be mindful. <laughs> By the aspiration of the lamas, the buddhas, the bodhisattvas, the lineage masters, may all friends attain stable mindfulness. So let's just be mindful for a moment without changing your posture.
may all beings, including ourselves, realize the Four Noble Truths. May all beings, including ourselves, realize the highest happiness, the happiness of freedom. Thanks for your long enduring attention and making it through the first talk. It's often the hardest talk to sit through. Thanks for your kind attention and uh, please uh, enjoy your meal. Enjoy your. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.